write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God add his blessing to his word. You can be seated. Last weekend, we were taking uh, our kids to their various universities, getting ready for the semester, and on Sunday night, I was talking to my son Micah just before we left him at Asbury University to take on his sophomore year. When it came to faith, Micah has been perhaps our most skeptical of my four children. All during his uh, teenage years, he, he had questions, and he wasn't always satisfied with the answers. However, after this past year, I have seen God move in his life in some pretty dramatic ways. And we especially sense that during this time that he was uh, back with us over the summer and during this period of corona. And as we talked on Sunday, he shared with me that one of the things that had happened in his life was, he said, at Asbury, I've been able to see clearly that people's faith was real. He said, you know, it, it wasn't for me just mom and dad. It, it wasn't just the people that I knew maybe in a distant way in church. I saw people who were my age, who loved God, who followed Jesus, who really wanted to be like him. It was the real thing, he said. And he was telling me, that's what I want in my life, a faith that is real. And I'm so grateful that he has begun to find that. And I found myself, as I listened to him, tearing up and welling up with pride and joy. And I want to ask you this morning, is your faith real? Is it authentic? Is your faith of such a quality that others can say, it must be real. Look at him. It must be real. Look at her. And so this morning, I want to ask the question, what makes an authentic Christian what is genuine Christianity? Now, I notice here when I launched into this passage that, that John, the apostle, talks about his experience with Jesus. He says, I saw him. I touched him. In him, I found eternal life. And John is making it clear that Jesus was an historical figure. He really lived. He really died. He really did rise again. But in pointing out the reality of Christ, John also shows us something that is very important. We know that his relationship with Jesus had a dramatic impact on John. You remember that, that John was a part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He, he may have, in fact, only been about 18 or 19 years old when Jesus called him to follow him. But at that time, John had a nickname. He was called one of the sons of thunder. He was called a son of thunder. Now, you don't get a name like that unless you have something thunderous about you. And perhaps he had a problem with his temper. Perhaps he was aggressive. Perhaps he was just boisterous. We don't know, but I do know this. He had been with Jesus for three years 
when Jesus began to predict his death. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus talks twice about his impending death and, and how they are headed toward Jerusalem where he would die on a cross. But John has no idea what Jesus is talking about. But here they are, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus makes the decision to to go through Samaria, not around it as most respectable Jews in that day would do. And what we see there is while they were going through Samaria, a Samaritan village rejects Jesus and his disciples, reflecting the racial tension of the day. They say, oh no, you can't stay here, You, you can't eat here. And you may remember John and his brother James, they say something to Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is headed to the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus loves the world so much that the best possible person is going to die the worst possible death so that the most possible people would have life in him. But they say to Jesus... Do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy this town? Would you like me to make them crispy critters and all that? And Jesus, the Bible says, turns to them and he rebukes them. Now, I think that's an interesting word because that's the same word that Jesus uses towards demons. He rebuked demons. And at that moment, he rebukes his own disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying, that is not our way. John had not yet learned that lesson, and a lot of Jesus' disciples still haven't learned that lesson. Jesus is saying, we are going to win by dying. But John eventually gets it. John did change. And so this epistle was known as the epistle of love. John the disciple became known as the apostle of love. And I would submit to you that the reason why is because he had come to know Jesus personally, the one who is love. And his relationship with Jesus, listen to this, changed him. He was a different person because he met Jesus. So now John is writing, he's probably in his 80s at least when he writes this letter. He is writing, in fact, to second and maybe even third generation Christians. And what I mean by that is these are people that he is addressing that that grew up, uh, many of them in the faith. Many have heard about Christianity from their parents and their grandparents. Most of them now have grown up in Christian homes. Christianity for them was therefore not something new, but something they had heard about most of their lives and were part of. They grew up with it. They were used to the gospel message. And as much as I I think about that, there is an inherent danger in that, isn't there? So John wants to reinforce, he wants them to know something very important. Sometimes when I talk to people who are new to our church, as they will share their testimony with me, it's not uncommon to hear that they went to church for years even. But they'll say, Pastor, no one ever told me that I could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, I I don't want to make that same mistake. And so the first thing I want you to know about authentic Christianity is that it begins with an experience of the true and living 
God. In fact, John begins, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. What John is telling us here is, I know him personally. And I'm writing these things to you so that you can have a personal, life-giving relationship with the living Lord too. You see, my friends, I want you to know this morning that Jesus did not come to this world to give us another religion, another set of rules, another guideline of how to live. We have plenty of those where you have a set of beliefs that give you some moral direction and might just make you a better person. And people will say, well, I'm a Christian. Why? Because, well, my parents were Christians. They went to church often. I don't go maybe as near as often, but I'm a Christian too. Or I'm a Christian pastor because... I follow the the Ten Commandments, or I live by the golden rule, or I try to be a good person. The problem is, is that none of those things will get you to heaven. Listen, good people don't get to heaven. People who know Christ as Savior and have had their sins forgiven get to heaven. You see, the problem is we we don't need a set of rules to make us better. The truth is it's like we're bobbing up and down in the middle of the ocean 500 miles away from the nearest seashore. We're doggy paddling our best as we can, but it's not going to make any difference. At that point, we don't need a guidebook on how to swim better. We need someone to rescue us. And John comes along and he says, Jesus has come to rescue us. And so he says in verse 2 of chapter 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Years ago, our uh, church did a men's night out at an Indians baseball game. Back then, it was called Jacob's Field. Do you remember those days, some of you? And I decided to take my son Caleb, who was just about four years old at the time, with me to introduce him to the joys of baseball. So I remember the night. It was a beautiful night. We had a great time with the guys. But there we were, sitting in the bleacher section. Caleb is dressed up with his baseball cap and his baseball glove. And we ate hot dogs and popcorn and peanuts. And we had some pop and a frozen icy. You know, I just love baseball, all the food you get. Well, well, Caleb, again, about three, maybe four years old, and I'll tell you, I was so proud of him. He did such a great job just sitting there patiently watching the game, all nine innings, only went to the bathroom once. He had that glove on. He had his baseball cap, as I said. But when the game was finally over, he asked me this question. He said, Dad, when do I get to play? (laughs) When do I get to play? He understood something I think that we all know. Baseball is a whole lot more fun when you get to play rather than just watch it. You know, it occurs to me this morning how often uh, we make religion like a baseball game when when you don't have the experience of God. It's just kind of boring. 
It just takes up your time and money. Religion without an experience of God is like watching a game you don't get to play. It's like a party without presence. It's like the hassles of marriage without the intimate moments of love and grace or the challenge of parenting without ever hearing those words, Dad, I love you. Authentic Christianity is not something that where you're supposed to stay on the sidelines. That's why we're doing baptism today. That's why we're taking communion. It is an intimate opportunity to live in the presence of God, to have a relationship with him. Authentic Christianity begins with a real, vital, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's where it begins. Do you know him this morning? Now, friends, if we have that relationship, I want to tell you the Bible teaches that something's going to happen. Secondly, in this passage, John tells us that Christianity will produce authenticity in the life of the one who believes, in the life of the one who has that relationship. John tells us here that God is light, and light provides safety, it provides direction, And in this passage, there are five authentic signs of faith that living in the light will produce that we can expect to find in our lives if we know him. And I want to just give those to you very quickly. First, number one, John points out that our faith will produce a consistent pattern of behavior. He says in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim to know him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. God is light, and if we have a relationship with him, we can't have a relationship with the darkness. That makes sense. In other words, you don't sing praises in church and use profanity at work. You you don't drink the communion cup on Sunday and then get drunk on the wine cup on Friday. If if you are reading your Bible in the morning, then you aren't watching filth at night. You don't get to put a fish bumper sticker on your car and then give an obscene gesture to somebody who cuts in front of you. You don't claim to walk in the light and then treat Total strangers better than your own spouse. Old timers used to say, you can't walk with God and run with the devil. So so listen to this. John says very clearly, if you claim to have fellowship with him, if you claim to know him, and yet you walk in darkness all the time, then you're a liar. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to your church. You're lying to God. And so an authentic faith is confirmed by a consistent pattern of godly behavior. Now, number two, John says, notice how our faith produces a continuous fellowship with other believers. Verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin i got to admit this morning, I'm a little angry. I'm a little upset. Ohio State football has been canceled 
for the fall. Truth is, my sermons will probably be pretty good this fall because I'll have a lot more time than I normally would in the fall. No cheering my team on, no, no national championship aspirations, no beating up Michigan yet again. It's not going to happen this year. And I was thinking about this. I, I, you know, when, when I would watch an Ohio State-Michigan game, there were certain people I didn't want to hear from. There were certain people I don't want to be around during those games. And uh, I would never invite Jerry Freed or Don McDaniel or Terry Junkins to my home, especially during the game. Why? Or Jessica over here? They're all Michigan fans, and I don't want to be around them. John tells us, listen, if you're a Christian, you want to be around God's people. You want to be around those with a like faith, like values, like heart, like love. And one of the things I've realized because of this COVID stuff, I realize that, that, that some of us can't be physically together, and, and that's where we are today. I understand that. But my fear is, is that many of us are going to grow cold and get used to being apart, get used to staying at home. The reality is, is that God has given us the church for fellowship, for friendship, for encouragement. I've always said this, that one of the best gifts that God gives to his people is his people. They're not perfect. And they'll disappoint you. But if you love the Lord, there's a natural desire to be with his people. It's a good test for us this morning. Do we want to be with his people? Now thirdly, John tells us our faith produces a transparent awareness of our sinful condition. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, at first I think, man, this sounds like a contradiction. John just said we are purified of all sin, but if you have no sin, he says, you're not being truthful. If you say you have no sin, you're not being honest. I, I think what he's referring to here is this pattern consistency of behavior. If you deliberately, consistently find yourself choosing to walk in darkness, you're living a lie. On the other hand, if you think you're perfect, so pious and so righteous that you don't have any sin anymore, you're lying too. See, I've come to believe this as I've grown in my faith, and boy, the Lord's still working on me in so many ways, that as you continue to grow in your relationship with God, the brighter his light shines on you and in you. And the fact is, the more aware you become of your own faults. I I, I was interested to note this. Follow me here. In AD 54, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, six years later, in Ephesians, he wrote in chapter 3, I am the least of all the Lord's people. Four years after that, in 1 Timothy, Paul wrote this. He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
So in 10 years, Paul went from saying, I'm the least of the apostles. And he keeps looking and he keeps walking with God. I'm the least of the Lord's people. And then a few years later, God continues to, to reveal himself. God continues. And he says, man, I am the chief, the worst of all sinners. You see how that circle kept growing as he experienced God's grace and wonder. And the reason I think this is this. The more he grew, the closer he came to the light of the cross, the more he became aware of his own junk. I think it happens in a believer. We, we, we become more aware of how much God wants to do in us. And that doesn't discourage us. It, it rather allows us to appreciate the magnificence of God's grace in our life and his patience with us. Think about this. When I begin to really understand, therefore, how sinful I am, when God's light begins to shine on me and I see how far from the shore I am, I can't make it on my own. John directs us to verse 9. He says, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so John gives us a fourth element of authentic Christianity. Faith produces a humble confession of sin. I want to remind you this morning, my friends, that there's a difference between confessing your sin and admitting your sin. Oh yeah, I'll admit it. You caught me. I'm a sinner. Everybody does it. I'm sorry. No. This is more than that. 2 Corinthians 7 talks about a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, Paul says, leads to death. It doesn't get you anywhere. Godly sorrow, however means that true confession means that we agree with God. We agree with his verdict. We agree that, yes, we are sinful and that we don't deserve anything but death. An authentic Christian is brokenhearted because of their sin. Because we know by sinning we've broken the heart of God. And so we have a desire to break that pattern. And God promises, if we'll do that, if we'll agree with him, if we will confess it, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Now, what is that word? I, I thought it's interesting. That word just is something that I thought something about this week. When I hear the word just and just this, I often think in terms of punishment. I, I get what I deserve. That's just. But notice here how John changes that, and he says God is just when he forgives. And you know why that is? Because the price for sin has already been paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me give you an example. Over the years, this has happened to me a few times. Mary and I might make our way to, with the kids to a restaurant in town or somewhere, and what typically happens, of course, is I order our meal, and at the end of the meal, I expect the waitress to give me a bill. That's the way it usually works, but over the years, every once in a while, something different happens. She won't give me the bill, and I'll ask her, hey, uh, can we have our bill now? And she'll finally say, well, sir, it's already been taken care of. Well, what do you mean it's been taken care of? Well, yeah, it, 
Someone in the restaurant has already paid the bill for you. Now, sometimes I know who it is, and sometimes I don't. And boy, if I had known earlier that they were going to do that, I would have ordered steak rather than the measly burger and fries that I got. But, but I am free and clear. But think about it. She would have been unjust to have taken my money at that point, right? Would have been dishonest. That's the same way with Jesus. Fact is, in our lives, we did order the steak and so much more when it came to the bill. In fact, the bill was so high, you couldn't pay it. But Jesus did. And God forgives us, free and clear, because he is a just God. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And that leads me to that last point this morning. If our faith is genuine, John says it's going to produce a a dependence, a daily dependence on God and his grace. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The goal is don't sin. It, 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 it kills you. It hurts relationships. It takes you from God. Live that life in light. We may not be sinless, But friends, as we grow older and more mature in Jesus, we should sin less, shouldn't we? As we fill up and draw closer to him in the light. But John says, if you do sin, you have an advocate, a friend, a defender. His name is Jesus. And you can lean totally on him. Some of you will remember the name Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy was uh, eventually was named the Attorney General of the United States. And one time, a member of the press asked him, uh, how is it that you got to be Attorney General? And Bobby responded, well, I studied hard in school. I tried to do every job I had to the best of my ability. And... My brother is president of the United States. So often it's about who you know. How are you going to get to heaven? You can study hard and go to church and sing out loud and read your Bible and all those things. Those aren't bad things. But the good news is our elder brother, Jesus Christ, has the keys. And he happens to be a savior. And if you follow him, you know him, he'll get you there. And so this morning, we ask ourselves, today, have I put my trust in him? And if you have... 
You've been forgiven. And we come to the table now to celebrate that. Will you pray with me? Father, this is the glorious message of the gospel. That if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we come to this table because we want to know you. We want your very being inside of us that we might live in the light of your grace. Lord, we are daily, moment by moment, dependent on your spirit in this relationship. And Lord, we are not perfect, but we want to be perfected. We want to be more like you. Thank you, Lord, for the provision of grace that is here this morning. And Lord, I pray for each person in this room and each person who is listening to my voice, maybe via live stream, that they would, they would consider where they are with you. Are they out there swimming as hard as they can with no hope? Or are they willing to say, thank you, Jesus, you love me, and I put my full faith and trust in you, my advocate, my savior, and what you did on the cross for me. Lord, I pray that they would invite you into their lives and they would choose to follow you with their whole hearts today. I ask this in the precious name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen.